Hi there, uh, I'm Jacob. Uh, I'm second year doing mathematics. Uh, we're going to go through the Bible reading. If you have your hand out, you can just find out here. And we're looking through Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their, uh, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are, are, are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Bar- um, Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief, chief priest stirred up the crowd to, Pilate, to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him! Crucify him! They shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to, sa- wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his, own, uh, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Gol- Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, But he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down, from, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama tzabkani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. He said, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 
And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and uh, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Thanks, Jacob. Hi, I'm Tim. It's great to be with you today. You'll find an outline for the talk on the back of the the handout, if you find that helpful. Well, September is a big month in recent history. Some significant world-changing events have happened in September. You probably don't remember that, but you know the repercussions, don't you? 17 years ago, two planes flew into the World Trade Centre in New York City. That chilling, unsettling event the effects of terrorism that have hit the Western world in the guts and continue to reverberate. Ten years ago, Lehman Brothers collapsed, precipitating the global financial crisis. Unemployment across the globe jumped from 5% to 8%. Hundreds of millions of people were out of work. Millions are forced into poverty by the event precipitated by the Lehman Brothers. But such events don't happen every September or every weekend. This coming weekend, the West Coast Eagles might win or they might lose, but in three years' time, who cares? Even if you're a West Coast supporter, who cares? But when events happen, it's not always easy to work out just how significant they're going to be. Here's Annette Obstrat. She was born on this day in 1988. Now, when she was born, who knew what she would be? Do you know that she became the youngest ever poker world champion? Can you believe that? Now, hasn't that changed your world? I doubt it. Because lots of events just come and go, don't they? Well, in Mark chapter 15 and 16, Mark recounts to us some events which he thinks and wants to convince us of, much more like 9-11 than the birth of Annette Obstrat, a weekend that changed the world. Mark 15 and 16 are really the climax of this story, this biography of Jesus that Mark has been uh, recounting for us. If you've been with us over all this year at our public meetings, we've actually gone from beginning now to the end of Mark's gospel, this biography. And he's been raising the question for us, firstly, who is Jesus? Who is this guy who can calm storms, who can cast demons out of anybody just at a word, who can heal people, even bring people back from the dead? Who, Who can do that? And finally, the disciples twig in Mark chapter 8, the the middle of the gospel, you're the Messiah. You're the king that God promised to send. And then the question changes to, well, what's he come to do? What's his mission? And Jesus says, I've come to die. Very strange mission for a Messiah. 
But that's really what the rest of this gospel is about. He, he says in chapter 10, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And we finally get to the time when that happens. He gives his life. And it's sort of very dramatic. And you expect it to be fairly emotional. But Mark positions us almost like watching from a distance. Like the, the women in verse 40 who are there, they see it all happen, but they're sort of distant from it. They're not up close. See, as he recounts what happens with the death of Jesus, it's quite matter of fact. Verse 15, he just says, he was flogged. And I'm sure your imagination can fill in all the details of what a flogging might look like and how it might pain, but Mark doesn't give us any of the details. He says later in verse 33, they crucified him. Three simple words to sum up what the Romans had invented as the cruelest, most embarrassing and shameful form of execution they could imagine. And many movies and books fill in all the details for you. They give you the sound of the hammer blows as the nails go in. And the sort of pain that would have racked his body as he, as he hung on the cross. But Mark doesn't point us to any of those things. There's no zoom in to the face to see the pain etched in his cheeks. You don't see the blood seeping down from the crown of thorns on his face. Yeah, the, the passion of the Christ will do that for you. They'll show you all that. But that's not where Mark focuses us. It is dramatic, but it's not that sort of closeness. He doesn't focus on the emotion and the extreme pain. Why is that? I take it because back in chapter 14, if you were with us last week, he's actually told us what this death is about. It's not primarily about crucifixion. It's not about physical pain. It's drinking the cup from his father's hand. It's suffering in himself, the anger, the wrath of God against human sin. That's what it's about. And, and you can't show that on a movie. You, you, you don't see that in close-ups. And so Mark never shoves a microphone under Jesus' face and says, how are you feeling? Does it hurt? Now, we know what it's about, and now Mark plays it out for us. We watch it happen from a distance. Not about the cruelty of crucifixion, although that was real. But he draws our attention to other things. And there's two particular things he draws our attention to uh, that are sort of surprising. The first one is that Jesus dies as a saviour. As the story is recounted, if you were watching it and it's a video clip, you would think that Jesus is the most helpless person on the planet at that point in time. He's got no army. He's got nothing going for him. He's just a helpless victim desperately in need of saving. But as he dies, we see him saving others. The obvious one is Barabbas. In chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Accusations are flying left, right and centre about everything he's done wrong. Jesus is silent like a sheep before a cheerus. It's clear to Pilate that Jesus is innocent. He wants to release him. But then we find out that Barabbas is in the opposite situation. He's already been tried. He's faced court. He's been found guilty of insurrection and murder. He's been sentenced to death, to execution by crucifixion. He's just waiting for it to happen. He's guilty and he deserves it. His fate is sealed. But what happens? Well, here's Barabbas. He goes free. The guilty one is released. Here's Jesus, the innocent one, and he's crucified. You see, there's a clear substitution that happens here, isn't there? 
The one who deserves to be executed finds himself out on the streets of Jerusalem that day, surprisingly free. He thought it would be his last day of his life. He was sure his fate was sealed. But as he walked the streets of Jerusalem, he must have pinched himself a few times saying, how has this happened? I didn't ask for it. It just sort of happened to me. Is it real? Out of the blue, Jesus dies my death. And I'm free. I'm liberated. I'm still just as guilty as I was, yet I'm living the life of an innocent person. And Barabbas is actually the experience of every Christian. Jesus died in my place. He died in your place. I'm guilty and condemned, but I go free because Jesus takes my place. But there's more about saving in this passage, in this chapter. Notice how many of the insults hurled at Jesus focus on saving. Verse 29, the people come hurling their insults saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Chief priests and teachers, they also say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. (laughs) They say he saved others. He healed people who were sick. He even brought people back from the dead. But, and they think it's a laugh, he can't save himself. He's now helpless. But the irony is, of course, he can save himself. If he can say to a storm, stop, and it does, (laughs) he can stop crucifixion. That's not difficult at all. But he chose not to save himself in order to save others, including you and me who live 2,000 years later. He saved us by not saving himself. And then there's the darkness. We're told in verse 33 that at noon, 12 o'clock, darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three hours of eerie darkness in the middle of the day. What could that mean? Some people have suggested that it must be an eclipse of some sort. But it could only be a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse can only happen at new moon, when the moon is between the earth and the sun. But Passover, the time that Jesus died, is at full moon, when the moon's on the other side of the earth. It can't be an eclipse. That's impossible. So what is it? Well, we're not sure. I don't know how it happened. It must be an act of God, a portent. A clue as to what is going on, because darkness, well, everyone knows what darkness symbolises, don't we? It, it, it symbolises evil and death. A profound, something profoundly dark is happening. In the Old Testament and in every culture, it's common to think of darkness as tragedy, as the judgement of God. That is what Jesus is experiencing for three hours as he hangs on the cross, fully conscious. At the end of the three hours... He cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And Mark wants us to make sure that we not only hear what Jesus cries, but what it means. He translates it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Psalm 22, verse 1. What Jesus has experienced is forsakenness, deserted by God, his Father. Now, some of us know what it feels like to be deserted, to be abandoned. Maybe even by parents or friends. It's the worst nightmare, isn't it? To be abandoned by those that we thought loved us. Jesus hangs on the cross, abandoned by everyone. (laughs) Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. The disciples have all fled. 
The women are keeping their distance. He's utterly alone. Yet what dominates his feeling of being abandoned is not abandoned by people, his friends, his family, but by God the Father. That relationship of eternal trust and joy and intimacy is shattered at that moment, over those hours. And that's far more painful. That's what the Bible calls hell. For God to have, his, to have God turn his back on you while you're fully conscious and alive. Our hell, our judgment was laid on him. That's what kills him. He dies much earlier than you'd expect of a young man crucified. He dies from drinking the cup of the wrath of the Father. Yet notice he still calls God, my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of disappointment as if he's throwing in the towel, oh God, you, you, you've abandoned me, I'm out of here. No, to call him my God is still to say, God, I trust you. You are still my God. And in fact, Psalm 22 that he's quoting from has this verse towards the end. For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. That's, that's me, says Jesus. He hasn't hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus expresses his trust in God, even as he experiences the abandonment from God, his father. Jesus, the saviour. But we also see Jesus, the king. That's what Pilate keeps calling him. In fact, in this chapter, Jesus is called king six times. But it's sort of paradoxical. Nobody actually thinks he is a king at the time. But Mark wants us to see that that's what he keeps being called. Verse 2, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer is, well, that's how you say it, which is sort of enigmatic. He's saying, Pilate, you're right, but I wouldn't necessarily understand it the way you understand it. They're your words. Pilate clearly doesn't think Jesus is a threat to his power. I mean, he's the proconsul and Tiberius was the emperor at the time. He's ready to release Jesus. Yet he keeps calling him the king of the Jews. He eventually caves in to the demands of the Jewish leaders, authorises Jesus' execution, knowing he's innocent. After all, political expediency, what's one more dead Jew? Interestingly, we only know about Pilate. He's only famous because of Jesus. That's why we remember him, because he crucified Jesus. The soldiers mock Jesus. They play a cruel game. They dress him up as a king, a purple robe, the, the, the colour of royalty. They put a crown on his head, except it's a crown of thorns. And they pay mock homage to him. Hail the king of the Jews. Long live the king, knowing they're about to execute him. But Mark wants us to see the irony of what is going on. The irony of the irony. It's sort of a bit convoluted, isn't it? You know what irony is, do you? <coughs> irony is sort of unconscious paradox. Something that doesn't fit right, but no one meant to do it. Uh, Like the fire station burnt down, or the policeman got robbed. It's ironic. Well, they're being ironic, except they're not unconscious. They're deliberately being ironic. Hail, King of the Jews. But Mark wants us to see the irony, because they're recognising who Jesus really is. He is the King, the King that God has sent. It might not look like a proper coronation, but It is. He already continues. What's the sign that's put up on the cross behind Jesus' head when he's crucified? The king of the Jews. Now, Pilate was having a dig at the Jewish leaders, wanting to to get back at them for what they've manipulated him to do. But it's still there. At last, 
publicly acknowledged that Jesus is the king. He's crucified with absolutely nothing. Nothing that a king has, no army. He hasn't even got any clothes. He's abject naked for all to see. His clothes, uh, well, the soldiers cast lots to see who gets it. He's got nothing to his name whatsoever. And yet he's finally recognised to be the king. And the centurion recognises it not in irony, but in reality. Verse 39, the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, the centurion who presumably was part of the games earlier when he bowed down in mock homage, the centurion who was there helping crucify Jesus, when he sees how he dies, he says, surely this man was the son of God. When he hears Jesus cry, when he sees the way he dies, which isn't from crucifixion, it's from broken heart, abandoned by God. He says, this man truly was the son of God. It's unclear what he means by that, but knowing that his ultimate boss, Tiberius, self-styled himself the son of God, we get an idea of what he means. For Tiberius, it was a claim to divinity. And so, presumably, that must be at least partly what the centurion meant. The true identity of Jesus is now on the lips of a Gentile, of a centurion, a Roman, recognises Jesus to be who he really is. God the Son, the Son of God, God's King. Now that all happened on Friday. Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Jesus by sunset Friday night, the time the Sabbath starts, His body's already been taken down. It's been laid in a tomb outside Jerusalem on a rock slab. And the tomb has been sealed up. His lifeless body, lifeless. But early Sunday morning, something different happens. Unexpected. I'm going to read to you chapter 16, 1 to 8. So they're printed on your outline. When the Sabbath was over, so it's now Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they went on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Jesus is risen. The dead body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. It's no longer dead. It's alive. It's visible. You will see him. Now, we're not told what that means. (laughs) The women who who saw it, who were there looking for the body, they don't know what to make of it. They leave bewildered and unsure. And maybe it is for us as well. Is it just a party trick? But stop and ponder for a minute. He died trusting God to rescue him. That's what Psalm 22 says. That's what his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, implies. And God has now rescued him. He's brought him back, not from dying, but from death. And that's different. You bring somebody back from dying, well, death is still there waiting in the shadows. It's still going to meet you. You will die one day. But if you're brought back from death itself, things have changed. 
Let me read to you how Paul expresses it in 2 Timothy. He says this, Christ Jesus has destroyed death and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. That's what's happened. Death has been destroyed. The power of death has been crushed by Jesus' resurrection. We think of death as the, the final frontier. You can't get rescued from death. That's the end of everything, isn't it? And yet here's somebody who's died, who's gone into death and has come back out again. The power of death has been broken once for all. But it also tells us that his sacrifice, his death for sin, was effective. His resurrection, in a sense, is the Father saying, paid in full. If he's still dead, he's still paying for our sin. He's resurrected. It's all been paid. And Mark narrates for us this true story, this history, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of the Son of God for sins of the world, for the evil of humanity. How do you imagine dying for the sins of the world might happen? Somebody lying in bed, sick with cancer, finally breathing their last? Walking down the street, get hit by a chariot and die in an accident? No, the way Jesus dies actually fits what it's doing, doesn't it? He's executed uh, by a judicial execution. It's no accident. It's not just dying of old age, which is what we deserve. The innocent for the guilty. That's very appropriate. And he dies under the weight of human sin. The injustice of condemning an innocent man to death, fueled by jealousy and hatred and petty vindictiveness and political expediency. Human sin expressed in violence and cruel murder of an innocent man. Human sin expressed in abandoning him in spineless fear, leaving him utterly alone. Human sin expressed in the scorn and mockery and the degradation that was heaped on Jesus. You see, all of human sin, in in a sense, was heaped onto Jesus as he dies. He shoulders it all in his own body. He silently bears the evil of humanity. He bears the evil and he bears the consequences of evil. The condemnation, the righteous and good wrath of God, his hostility to the evil of humanity. It's both bearing the the wrath of God and expressing the love of God at the same time, the love of God for rebellious humanity. See, in this event, on this weekend, it's sort of like this head-on collision between human sin, God come in the flesh and we murder him. We see something of the depth of human sin all heaped on Jesus that afternoon. And we see God's justice playing out and we see God's love for lost humanity all playing out, all meeting in this one event, on this one weekend, meeting headlong in Jesus, in his body, on the cross. Jesus embodied and absorbed, became all that sin is. He took my evil, all the evil I've ever done, all the evil I'll ever do. Have you ever been cruel? Have you ever been cowardly? Have you ever been mocking? Jesus shouldered it all. There's nothing you've done that Jesus didn't take, nothing you deserve that Jesus didn't bear. Jesus was my sin. He, he was me as he drank the cup to its bitter dregs, as he experienced hell that killed him. 
And this death is all I need. Just like Barabbas, because Jesus died, I go free. Because Jesus died, you can go free. Because he replaced me and redeemed me. That weekend is the turning point of history. We now live in a different world. And Mark tells us a bit about it. He gives a, a, a clue to that in verses 37 and 38. Jesus breathes his last. He's died. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's what happened. See, the curtain in the temple was a huge, thick temple that separated humans from God. The temple was God among us. God's in residence. But the curtain said, keep out. No one can go in. And it's ripped in two from top to bottom. It's God's action. And in doing so, two things have happened. The temple itself is desecrated. It's no longer the place where you go to meet God. In fact, there is no place where you go and meet God. There's only a person now, Jesus. That temple, his body was killed and raised again three days later. The old temple's been superseded. But it also tells us that you and I, even in Perth at UWA, the year 2018, we can approach God freely and confidently. Never shut out again by our sin. Even by our death. Tacitus, who was the most famous Roman historian of this time, wrote, nothing much happened in the reign of Tiberius. Mark would beg to differ. During the reign of Tiberius, Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified and rose again. It's history, it happened, but it's also enormously significant. It's the great crossroads of history. The weekend that that determined the destiny of the universe and potentially your destiny forever as well. It's been decided. It's been reversed. That's what happened that weekend.